morning, HBC. You can turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. We will pick up in the weed patch of self-love, part two, where we left off last week in verse five. As we use that language, garden imagery of, of weeds, things that we don't really like to deal with, but we have to. We know they're there. We see them. And we have to keep going after them. And that's just a part of if you want to have a nice looking mulch bed with flowers or if it's a garden, you want the good things to grow, you have to keep the bad things out. And so for the Christian, though we may not like to spend this much time in self-examination and in looking at sins in our lives, it's, it's part of the Christian life that we're told to examine ourselves and to look not just at the surface level stuff, not just at the things we can see above the ground, but then to take those things that are sprouting up above the surface of the ground in our lives, in our hearts, and go down to the root level. And last week we started in uh, verse 4 looking at some uh, sins that all kind of go back to the same taproot, if you know about plant life. The taproot is that main root that gives life to all the other things that are going to grow out of it. And we said that if we had to summarize the last uh, four lack of virtues, as in the, what love isn't, they were actions that centered around self. They were really at the heart of it, self-love. And we talked about that word from 2 Timothy 3, that self, self-love is just that starting point for a litany of other sins to flow out of. That if a person is, is so caught up in themselves, so in love with themselves, in their own thinking, and their own feelings, and their own actions... Uh, it can get to the point that they'll stop at nothing to satisfy themselves. And they just become uh, in a world unto themselves, even though it still may look from the outside looking in that they have relationships, but those relationships are destined to be used for their own selfish gain to get something out of it that pleases them, that serves them, because they have become their own selfish God. And so we saw in the negative form of what love isn't, Because true love, the opposite of this, has been defined by Paul. It's patient and it's kind, as in it doesn't, uh, it holds back on the things that it might want to do sinfully, and then it doesn't hold back on the things it should do in its kindness. And we took that back to the gospel, that it is the patience and kindness of God, the Father, that brings us to repentance in Jesus the Son. So what we're seeing in these uh, last four and then today in the other four, the eight negative virtues, is the opposite of true love. These are self-love characteristics. And self-love is that love that is only desirous to take in and not to give out. If you go back to the beginning of creation, if you think of Adam and Eve in their sinless state, you would see the only two human beings created with perfect love, where sin had not marred their souls, that they were able to love God with their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and they were able to love one another as they loved themselves. But what ruined that was sin. Sin inverted the order of to love God and love others and love self the way that they should have and we all should love. God first, others second, and us last. But sin inverted that order and it turned it inside out. And in Adam and Eve and everyone since then born into sin, we love ourselves first. And then maybe we'll still love others second and God last, but loving others second is only, in a a narcissist's world, a way to get more for themselves. And uh, it's harder to pull that one over on God, but we can take relationships on our own lives and manipulate them to get the things we want, and we could even try to make it look and sound like love. 
And in the Bible, we see that that's opposite of the way God made us to love. We're to love Him purely for who He is and for what He's done. We're to love others out of that same overflow of love God has shown to us. The problem is that in and of ourselves, we can't fix that, can we? That the only way that that love can be turned back in the right direction, in the right order of God first and others second and us behind, is the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ. As we just sang of, that we would see it was him that loved us first and gives us the opportunity and the ability and even the motivation to love the way God made us to love. But left in our sinful state, we can't do it on our own. I was thinking we need passages like this. They hit the reset button on our heart. They help us to evaluate. They help us to look at our lives in the mirror of God's word and say, something's not right with that picture. We need to hit the the reset or the default button back to the way that we are to be in Christ. I think of that imagery when I think of um, my remote control and and when the kids might um, take it and particularly the younger ones and somehow land on those buttons that change the color, the tint, I never knew what the tint was, or the sharpness and the contrast. And you turn the TV on and then you realize everybody's green. And you could sit there and try to mess with the thing, or you could just go to that one thing that says, go back to default settings. You hit that and it's restored. And really, that's what a passage like this is meant to do for the believer. We can get pretty far off in the coloration of the way we love, and we just have to go back to the Word and say, God, use this text today to hit reset. Because I know I don't love perfectly. What I don't know is how imperfect it is left to myself. And I, I could look around my life and see relationships and, and try to get some estimation of how far I'm gone. But other people, if they're loving me well, I may not know it and think I'm just, you know, I'm doing fine. You know, I don't see ruin around me. Some of us, we might. Could be the first fruits of a relationship going sour because of lack of love. But we have the perfect word of God here to show us what it would look like in our lives if we could love the way he designed And even imagine, not just in your own life, but in the world, imagine a world free of self-love, free to love God the way he designed it, free to love others the way he designed it, and even free to love the world in a way that would show them that we are different. One writer a few hundred years ago, J.C. Ryle, that we named the Ryle Room after, imagine that type of world when he said, think for another thing what a happy world this would be if there was more love. It is the lack of love which causes half the misery there is on earth. Sickness and death and poverty will not account for more than half the sorrows. The rest come from ill temper, ill nature, strife, quarrels, lawsuits, malice, envy, revenge, frauds, violence, wars, and the like. It would be one great step towards doubling the happiness of mankind and having their sorrows if all men and women were full of scriptural love. Ryle understood the power of God's love. And we understand it, don't we? I mean, we look out and we say, there are just some things we can't do anything about. Those are the things he mentioned. Half the pains and sorrows of this world are by things out of our control. But the things that are in our control start with love. The relationships we have and the people we could impact around us if we get it right. And that's why a passage like this is so precious to us. So follow along with me as I read 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, part 2 of the weed patch of self-love. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. 
Love does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. It does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. This is God's word to us, his enduring word, and his final word on love. And I pray that it will make an impact on our hearts this morning. Well, let's jump back in where we left off. We made it through four, that love is not jealous, love is not boastful, love is not arrogant, and love is not rude. We left off as love does not seek its own. That is the fifth weed of self-love, the, the, what you see above the surface, below the ground is self-love, but here we see it saying that it is not seek its own, as in it's, it's not out to seek something or to inquire or to search for towards itself. Seeking its own is, is seeking something out there, but then there's a reflexive pronoun there which turned it back inward. Love which is to move out and push out to other people around us. Self-seeking love, which isn't love, which is self-love, turns it back around to itself. In the ESV, maybe the translation you have, it says, it does not insist on its own way. Or if you've read uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message, helpful in its paraphrasing, he writes, love isn't always me first. And I actually like that way to describe it the best. A paraphrase, that love isn't, at its core, me first. However... We do know from Matthew 22, 35 to 39, that we can learn something about loving others in the way that we innately love ourselves. That was part of Jesus' answer when he was asked in Matthew 22, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And first he said, you got to love God with all of you, heart, soul, mind, and strength. But then he said, here's the second command, and it's like it. Now he does say it's second, it's not first. We are to love others as we love ourselves. And he's quoting Leviticus. And he says on these two commandments, the whole law and prophets hang, as in, if you can fulfill the law of love, you can fulfill the law of God. First, to love God perfectly, yet not exclusively, because that love to God should express itself in how we love those around us. And he says, to give you a reference point, think of how you love yourself, last on the list, in the right order, but you can use yourself as a reference point to say, hey, how am I at loving people around me? Uh, well, how are you at loving you? In action. Do you give yourself the benefit of the doubt? You do. Do you come to your own defense? You do. Even on the level of physical needs, do you wake up and find food to feed yourself in the morning? You do. So you take those and you go, okay, if I know instinctively, just built in, hardwired into who I am to, uh, to look out for myself, he's now saying in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, 39, hey, If you know that's the way you just do you, how about apply that to the people around you? Just as a real practical way to get started here. That self-seeking is not where I'm just going to only think about me. And it is me first, and everybody else can fall in line after it. And you think about that. If I do love others the way that I love myself, then I won't harm them. I won't plan their ill or I won't do anything against them, will I? No, because I don't do that to me. Now, Paul doesn't just highlight this here. He highlights how love isn't self-seeking, self-serving, 
self-interested. Elsewhere in the New Testament, when he talks about how our relationships exist, and all of our relationships as believers exist in in three uh, spheres, I'll call them, concentric circles. And I've shared this before, even as we sang the song Abide Today, that John 15, really, the whole chapter moves in those circles, that we all exist in Christ, in a church, as in, in a body of believers, we're the bride of Christ. We don't get a choice on that matter. There's no solo Christianity. And then we exist in the world, that we don't get saved and then shot out of here up into heavens and don't have to deal with these problems. We still exist in the world to bring the good news of the gospel to others. And so when you think about what Paul is saying here, you can think about expanding this out to the rest of the New Testament, how all of our relationships, there is a selflessness to them. First and foremost, that first circle, we are to seek the good of God and Christ's interest above our own. That's that first realm you live in. 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Whose interest do you have when you're doing all to the glory of God? His interests. That you do wake up in the day and say, God, how can I use my day for your glory? Related to that in Philippians 2.21, Paul builds a bridge between seeking the interests of others and that how that represents or is on display of how we seek God's interests. He says in Philippians 2.21, speaking of people in their church who were self-loving, they seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. They're not genuinely concerned for others' welfare. He was able to draw a line between, you know how I'll know that you put Christ and God's interests above your own? how you actually seek the interest of others, Philippians 2.21, which shows that that second circle, the good of Christians around us, in the bride of Christ, in the body of Christ here at HBC, that we do see that as our next realm of relationship, and that we make our decisions in life on those Christians around us based on the principle of seeking their good, building them up, not just seeking what's good for me. What can I get away with? 1 Corinthians 10, 23, 24, somebody who thinks like that says, oh, all things are lawful, right? But not all things are profitable. All things I can do, right? But not all things will edify. Edify who? The people around you. Build them up. Let no one seek his own good, 1 Corinthians 10, 24, but that of his neighbor. As in, it's just not about your own good. It's just not about what you get out of the matter. Even if you can use a Bible verse to say, well, uh, you know, it says that I can get away with that. It's lawful for me to do that, but how is it affecting the people around you? Are you taking them into consideration? Romans 14, Paul's saying the same thing to the church at Rome. So then, verse 18, we pursue the things which make for peace in the church and the building up of one another. Romans 15, 2, a few verses later, each of us is to please his neighbor for his good. Notice, we please our neighbor for their good in Christ, not just to please them for the sake of pleasing them, not just to shut them up. We seek their good, and that's why we would want to seek what's good for them, their pleasure, their edification. Last but not least, and we're familiar with Philippians 2, 4, and 5, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interest of others. No, don't merely, don't only, don't exclusively be thinking about your interests always, but consider others because that's what Christ did. So we start with our relationship with God. We're to seek his interest above ours, others' interest above ours. And then in the world, in the lost, we're to seek the good of their salvation. That interest is above ours. 1 Corinthians 10.33, just as I, Paul says, please all men in all things. Why do I do that? Because I'm a pushover? I just want people walk right over me? I'm a doormat? No, that's not why Paul wants to please men. There's no fear of man in Paul. 
But there is, I want to please men in all things, not seeking my own profit, he says, but the profit of the many so that they may be saved. Every one of those realms of relationship that Paul could call on that wants us to see, when it comes to seeking others, not insisting on our own way, it starts with, am I putting God's interests above my own? An easy way to see that is just, are you willing to obey what his word says? I mean, that's how you know whether you're putting God's interest above yours. When you come up with something in Scripture you don't want to do, and you want to say, you know, First John 5, oh, these commandments are burdensome. No, they're not. They're for God's interest, and God's interests are in your best interest. And then you work it out from there. What's for this other person's good? In the church, you move out to that next circle. And then we're still put somewhere. Every one of Paul's letters, it's written to a church in a place, whether Ephesus, whether Corinth meaning we're to exist inside that area, in that local sphere, impacting people for the gospel. And we might have to make decisions to put their good above mine for their good in the gospel. It's a pretty clear-cut reality in AD 55 that Paul is saying we can't be self-seekers, self-servants. We have to be servants of others. And so ask yourself this morning, as a follower of Christ, am I putting God first, others first before myself Am I getting over my own ideas, my own wants, my own needs, my own thoughts, my own attitudes, my own actions? Those are the categories you could think of this in. And listen, we're not all made the same, as in some of us struggle to put others' even thoughts before ours. We think we always have the best ideas. One of the best and worst days of my Christian life was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We'll call it Los Angeles. And we'll call it when I was in seminary. And a mentor of mine was loving enough to call me out with a truthful and hard and loving uppercut to my self-seeking jaw. When he just put it very matter-of-factly, Adam, you ought to consider perspectives that don't originate in your own thinking. Boom! That's what I needed to hear. You know, because majority of my life, I love all my ideas, my own thoughts. Imagine that. But that might not be you. may not be your thoughts. I mean, you may just be easy to um, go along with someone else's idea. And that's good, but you, maybe you struggle when your desires kick in. That in the, in the world of intellectual um, exchange, you're okay with, okay, that's a, I like that idea, fine. But then when it gets down to your desires, your wants your passions. James 3 says that cause the quarrels among you. Maybe that's where it kicks in. You can easily be humble enough to go along with someone else's idea, but then when you feel something so strongly, and it could be a sinful lust, and then you're trying to get that person to bend their will to yours, now they're pulling, you're pulling them into your sin. It's at the level of want, desire. Maybe that's where you struggle with this self-seeking. It could also just be at the most basic level of need. I mean, we need food, water, shelter, but even there we can be so self-seeking that we put our own needs in front of others' needs. As in, dudes, when you get home and you expect dinner at five because you worked all day and a certain dinner, and it's a need to eat. Do you have to eat right then and there? Do you take into consideration? Maybe your wife hasn't had a chance to eat all day. Maybe she, all she got was the, um, was the ends that she cut off the PBJs for the kids and hasn't had a chance to whip up a Paula Deen meal for you to be served right at 5 o'clock. 
All you're doing is you're just making a big deal of, you know, you're like couching. Hey, I got needs. Well, so do other people. Just look around. And you can sacrifice some of those needs for somebody else's good. So whether it's at the level of your mind, your heart, your actions, attitudes, what Paul is saying here covers it all. Love does not seek its own. Another way we might do this, and it's, it's not maybe as apparent in its um, uh, fruition, in its action, it's a passive form of self-serving. It's self-preserving. So we may not do all those other things actively, but we have a certain amount of self-preservation where I'm looking out for me. And I would move us from the first two circles, relationship with God and others in the church, other believers, to maybe think of this and let it land on you in your relationship to the world and unbelievers. Do you act in a way that could be seen as self-preserving by your unwillingness to speak the truth and love to an unbeliever about their state? We're talking about evangelism. But I want to land that a little closer to home. We're talking about evangelizing the people that you love. As in like a wayward adult child. Or a parent that just is indifferent to going to church. To talking about Christ. Uh, Maybe a good friend you grew up with and you love them so much. And they're just living in open, outright sin. And you know they need Christ. You know it. Self-seeking could look like self-preservation, can't it? And we could even say things like, well, I I just don't want to run them off. I want to love them well. But ask yourself the question in relation to self-love. Whose good are you ultimately seeking when you do that? I'm talking about a person who's lost. And if they are on their way to hell, unrepentant of their sin. Do you really care about their loving them the most if you're not willing to talk to them about Christ? Because what is their greatest need? If you're putting their needs above yours, their greatest need is salvation. Their greatest need is not to be headed in their sin toward an eternal damnation of hell. And the offer of the gospel in Jesus Christ is clear. You don't have to go to hell. He offers you heaven. You don't have to stay in your sins. He offers you his righteousness. You don't have to be on a path to your own self-destruction. I can show you a way out. So is it really loving when we say, like, but I, and, and I get the idea that, but if I do that, last time I brought it up, they said they would never talk to me again. But love at its core, wouldn't it have you say, but if I don't bring this up, and I'm not saying haranguing them every time you talk, but I'm saying when that holiday is coming because you only see them once or twice a year now, that really you're praying, Lord, give me the courage to speak up because though they may not want to talk again to me down here on earth, I do want to see them again where? In heaven. I mean, a, a person who's self-loving could have an amount of self-preservation that, that causes them to say, I don't want it to feel awkward. I don't want to lose their friendship. But what are you ultimately going to lose? Versus what are they going to lose? You may lose a temporary relationship. And you're not sovereign. You don't know how just because they said, I never want to talk to you again. But by you faithfully proclaiming the gospel to them, it, it, it's a seed, the gospel is, it says. And it can, it can land in the human heart. And it can stay planted there for a while. And you may think time's going to go by and you lost them. 
And then years later, they reach out to you. And God saves them. Isn't it worth it for that? I mean, this is not some guilt trip into evangelism. This is the reality of love does not seek its own. And sometimes we seek our own by being self-preserving and not being willing to speak the truth in love to a lost person that we love. Because the greatest display of our love for them is to want them to know our Savior, isn't it? Every, I stand up here every week and it could be self-preserving. It could be comfortable for me to not say the word hell and sin and damnation. And there's a lot of pastors today who make quite a comfortable pastoral living never talking about hell, never bringing up sin, never telling somebody that might be sitting in the audience, you need to repent, turn from your sins and trust in Christ. That's the easier path, whether it's me up here or you going out there. But I have to ask myself the question, Adam, are you being self-seeking in that? You never know what Sunday somebody's here and needs to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. You may not be in Christ this morning. You may not know it even. And so it's not just if you're not in Christ this morning and you know it and you're here, but to even preach a sermon that that helps you or, or forces you to examine what are the fruits of true Christianity that maybe plants the thought in my head, I've been going to my church my whole life, but I've never loved like this. How do I really know I'm in Christ if I don't see the fruit of love, the first and foremost fruit? That's an uncomfortable message to preach in the Bible Belt. When you might have signatures all through your Bible of every time you walk down front. You have pictures of every time you got rebaptized, just to be sure. But the one thing you don't have is assurance. Because one of the things you don't see is the fruit of love. God's love in your heart. That he plants it when you have been born again. And so this sermon this morning is for you to examine your life and to say, do I know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Have I called upon him as Lord? Have I confessed that I am a desperate sinner who can't save myself and I call out for mercy to him? You can do that right now. For those that have, it is a good check in our own hearts to look for self-seeking, self-serving, self-preserving attitudes ideas, and ask Christ to work on our hearts from the inside out. Self-seeking, and that takes a little bit longer because that encompasses a lot. This next one is a little more narrowed down, and it even relates back to patience. It's just a different angle on it. It's love is not provoked. Uh, What makes this different, and even the next two that we're going to cover, the final three of uh, definition by negation, is these all now have to do with when somebody sins against you. The first five we covered out of these eight uh, don't have particular reason to think somebody has sinned against you. Somebody doesn't need to sin against you for you to be jealous or boastful or arrogant or to be rude or to seek its own. But now, to be provoked means somebody has sinned against you. They've done something to you that now you have to ask the question, am I quick to anger Winston Churchill said, a man is about as big as the things that make him angry. So how big are some of those things that make you angry? How quick are you to be provoked? This word provoked, uh, it was was a picture of something being sharpened and and pointed. And and, And now it's, are you easily provoked and poked and pricked? 
How quick to anger are you? But I guess what this makes us ask today is, how does my quick to anger response display not just that I, I, you know, I have anger issues? Well, how about um, below that, I have self-love issues? I mean, if I'm so insecure, if I'm so self-centered that somebody can set me off so easily, my love for God and others must be really shallow. Or to maybe give you a different image, I must be pretty thin-skinned if I can be so quickly provoked uh, versus thick-skinned. You know, to picture of an oak tree versus when it's a sapling. You know, if I find a sapling... I can probably go up with a sharp fingernail and leave a nice divot in it, can't I? But I go up to an oak tree that's been around for a while. I could take a sledgehammer to it. may not even leave a dent. Why? One's maturing. One's grown. The other's immature. The other one's weak. And so you think about thin-skinned versus thick-skinned Christianity. You know, what's it take for somebody to leave a mark on you, to provoke you, to poke you? How quick does it take? And that's a mark of maturity. And that imagery in my head is, you know, um, even when I was in L.A. one time, uh, and there's fires there every year, one time they hit close to home, and a few weeks later I was running through the hills of Santa Clarita, and there were an area where it was known for the golden oak trees. And um, everything under six feet had been just burned out in that fire. But these big oak trees remained. Now, they were blackened by the fire. And you, you went up to them. And, and I mean, it was just the bark was pitch black. But when I peeled it back, guess what was healthy and alive underneath? A tree. It could stand the heat because it was mature. And so it is to be in our Christian lives as we grow in love. I mean, how do we win this battle of the flames of, of anger, being quick to anger? For once in our life, we do fight fire with fire. If you have a blazing love for God in your heart, there's nothing left to be burned over for anger, is there? I mean, on your best day, when you see yourself not responding quick, like, because we have, it, there's different things that trigger us, and it can happen anytime, but when you notice, hey, what was the reason today I wasn't quick to lose my patience or cool with that person? I wonder if you can trace it back to your morning devotions. That it wasn't just in this vacuum, like, hey, it was just a good day, I didn't get mad. But you could say, Lord, you know what? When I thought about it, I actually woke up today, read my Bible, prayed, went into my day full of the love of God for me. See, that's where it starts. That it just, it just resets you in a way. That then when things happen to you, you're not looking for someone else's affirmation or even their obedience or allegiance to you. Why? Because you've been affirmed in the gospel. God so loved you, he sent his son to die for you. You renew yourself in that. And you could sometimes tell the litmus test of your response in anger is how long has it been since I've, since I've uh, immersed myself in the good news of the gospel. Romans 5.5, 5, that remembering that the, the love of God has been poured into my heart through the Spirit. And, and a fullness of walking in the Spirit is my response in love to being provoked. That's weed number six. Weed number seven. I mean, these are just rapid fire, so that's how we're doing it. Number seven on the list, last one in verse five, love does not take into account a wrong suffered. I, I summarized it by just saying life is not, or love, love is not hypercritical. So if you're already sick of this sermon series, here you are. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. Is this guy ever going to be over with it? No, I'm just going verse by verse, word by word. 
Uh, love is not taken into account or wrong suffered is uh, borrowed from Paul's world of bookkeeping, accounting back in the day. Now, again, I'm going to use this for a little teaching moment in Bible translations. Uh, we have in our pews, if you're a guest here and you need a Bible, you can always use one there. We have the ESV, the English Standard Version. I'm most of the time preaching from the New American Standard Version. And it's, sometimes you're like, hey, what's the big difference between them? And the big difference between them is the NASB tries to be pretty literal. So when it says in your version, does not take into account a wrong suffered, or maybe you have the NIV, keeps no record of wrong, it's being very literal there. Now the ESV tries to help you understand or grasp uh, the force of it, what's coming through it, and so they just say, love isn't resentful. Both are true. Both are good translations. One's just a little more word-for-word literal. But also, when love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, you're like, well, what's that really doing to my heart? Well, the ESV said, well, what he's trying to get across here is, if you're the type of person that's always keeping tabs on everybody's sin against you, guess what kind of person you're going to be? Resentful. Bitter. Why? Because you can't let go of somebody else's sin against you. So both can be true at the same time. Okay, we're back from talking about Bible translations to the thing. Uh, Throw in the KJV, thinketh no evil. And I thought, I'm going to make the ultimate verse on this one. All four of them. Love thinketh and keepeth no resentful recordeth of evils done to itith. (laughs) Thank you. But that's really what it is. Love, true love, biblical love, doesn't think about it, dwell on it. Thereby it doesn't keep that record of wrong and grow resentful because of it. All those are true. Maybe one of the best uh, positive pictures of somebody that had a chance to do that but didn't was Joseph. I mean, think of the years he had to sit in jail and stew and keep a record of wrong of how his brothers treated him and what that could have done to him. He never knew he was going to see them again. But how you know that he understood what God's love was, that when he did finally see them, he wept. And then rather than returning evil for evil because he tracked every single thing they did and he counted down every single day and he thought, when I finally come into power, I'm going to get mine back. I'm going to teach them. Did he teach them? No, he didn't. He actually taught them about God's sovereignty when he said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's love keeping no record of wrong, not becoming resentful. But you say, Adam, he clearly kept a record. Well, he, he didn't have the choice. When he saw those guys again, I'm sure it all rushed back. Which blows up this kind of cliche of, you know, forgive and forget. The emphasis is the forgiveness. You work on that, you let the forgetfulness come from God. Because there's some things that you just go on living, and if you say, hey, try to forget that. Try to forget my long hair. Right? You can't. It's like, now you won't, because you're sitting there, and I just told you about it. But you just can't, oh, I'm just going to forget that thing. No, over time you may forget it. And as a sign of your sanctification in life and your growth in Christ... You'll start to remember the things you should forget, right? Rather than forget the things you should remember. As in that, that's growth. That's how God grows us. The good things that we're to think on, the true things that list in Philippians 4. Think on those things and leave it to God to allow the other stuff to be forgotten. Not dwelling on it is the point Paul's making here. The best way and the best word to take you to, to really summarize how powerful it is to not keep a record of wrong and to not grow resentful is in 2 Corinthians 5. And it's great because this is the same church that clearly sometime later they're still not getting their act together. 
And Paul writes him another letter and he tells him, look, I, I just, I'm not trying to come back to this church again and to be heavy handed, but you guys aren't getting it. And one of the things they're clearly not getting is the gospel. That if this church at Corinth has this penchant to keep a record of wrong and to be exacting and hypercritical, they don't get what God did for them in Christ. They've forgotten the gospel. They keep a record of wrongs and how people have done them wrong. And so in 2 Corinthians 5.19, he borrows the same word, an accounting word, but he uses it in a most beautiful way to teach them. Verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Same word. God doesn't keep a ledger for the believer of your wrongs against him. When you came to Christ, he didn't save you, Christian, because he knew you would just stop doing a bunch of bad things and he put them in the balance. He knew all the sins before and he knew all the sins after and he didn't count those against you. And then Paul could say, so he has committed to us this word of reconciliation. So ask yourself, how can you preach a gospel of reconciliation to the God who doesn't count things against him by you going around keeping accounts of everybody else's sin? 2 Corinthians 5.19 makes very clear. For the Christian to keep a record of wrongs, to keep an account of sins that people commit against you, hear it loud and clear, is anti-gospel. Did you catch that? For you to keep an account, a record of wrongs, whether you write them down or they just have a way to stay up here, for you to keep those, not forgive, and to hold somebody bitter, resentful, whatever it might be, and you could try to stuff it down, know that what you're doing fundamentally is an anti-gospel attitude and action. Because God the Father, through Jesus the Son, did not count their sins against them and thereby withhold his son. Instead, he did what? Sent his son into a world of sinners who had sinned against him. Amen. That's why this is a gospel issue here. For a Christian to be a CSA, Certified Sin Accountant, holding on to receipts. Like our, like our humble friend Deion Sanders says, I keep receipts. You know, it pairs well with narcissism. But it's entirely against the ethic of the Christian life to keep receipts. So you've got a journal. You keep texts. You have emails that you've saved and not deleted. Why? Why would you do that to somebody? So I can hold them accountable. To what? Your standard? Are they going to stand before you at the end? Are they going to have to confess their sins to you? No. You release them. You forgive them. Now, the work of reconciliation is another issue. That relationship may never be the same. But if you stand around waiting for every person to come back to you and hold them in the wrong, you're going to be waiting a long time. If God would have waited for you to come back to him, you'd still be in your dead, dead in your sins and trespasses. 
Keeping receipts is at the heart of it. Matthew 18, the parable Jesus tells at the end, when we don't forgive others, when we hold somebody to a lesser debt, what does that mean about the greater debt that God paid for us in Christ? And he tells that parable of the one servant, yeah, I'll forgive that debt you have. And it was a great debt. And then that same servant goes out and shakes a guy down for a really small thing. He says, you don't understand it. You don't understand what I just did for you. That's why the Lord's Prayer can end with what? To, to forgive as we've been forgiven. And if we don't understand that, we don't get the gospel. How about Colossians 2? I'm going to talk about receipts. When you were dead in your transgressions, Colossians 2, 13. He made you alive together with him. How did he do it? Having forgiven all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. You know, in your sinfulness, there were decrees against you. As in God's justice, his decree of justice that your sin requires judgment and wrath. But what did he do with your receipt? Where was it when he was on the cross? It was in his hand. Having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So where was your receipt? It was in his bloody hand. So you're going to keep receipts? It's anti-gospel. It's anti-Christ. But when you understand how much you've been forgiven, then what? You're like that lady who just weeps over Christ's feet. Because she knew she was forgiven much. That's what the heart of this is about. Knowing you've been forgiven much, you can forgive someone else. We like to sing a song around here, His Mercy is More, because it has wonderful lines like what love can remember all wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts all this. I'm thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Right? We love that. But I thought I would um, try my hand at songwriting and rewrite it. See if it speaks to you. It's called My Self-Love Keeps Score. Self-love will remember all wrongs you have done. Omniscient, all-knowing, it counts all their sum. Written down on a note in my self-righteous drawer. Your sins, they're many, and my ledger shows more. Grace no more. My self-love keeps score. No time for forgiveness always finds more. Your sins, they are many. My self-love keeps score. You like that one? Think it'll be a hit? It's true, isn't it, though? It's awful what self-love will do. But here's what Christ did. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our sins from us. Which do you want in your life? I think that's enough of that. Last one on the list, verse 6. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. This is kind of the rotten underbelly maybe that feeds the last one. That there's, there's some weird bent. I, I termed it harm joy. It's the, for my German speaking peeps. Schadenfreude, it's when you um, take some kind of self-righteous satisfaction in another person's failures, you know, on just a simple level. You know, we probably laugh at the things we shouldn't. Somebody trips and falls or slips on a banana peel or whatever. 
Um, we just, you know, maybe need to work on our sense of humor from time to time. But this one here, um, rejoicing in unrighteousness, really I call harm joy because it's, it, it's, there's something that's been done that's wicked in God's sight called sin, transgression, and this person rejoices in it. Now this one probably should be the most self-evident that Christians, we can't love God and celebrate evil at the same time. We just can't. Now in the world, Romans 1.32 says, hey, the world, um, they, they call evil good and they even rejoice in it. They give hearty approval. Well, that's how the world treats sin because they see, see things in reverse. That which is evil, they'll call good. Their, their hearts are wired to see it that way. But as a Christian, remember, we get turned back the right way. So when we see evil, when somebody else fails, when somebody else sins, even does it against us, we don't like have some smug satisfaction that makes us feel superior because what, now they're inferior? I mean, that's, this, that's the wickedness of this last one, rejoicing in unrighteousness. But can't you see how it could work with the last one? That if um, you know, we keep that record of wrong and it starts to make us resentful and bitter, then yeah, you know, keep piling up those sins. Just shows how awful of a person you are and how wonderful I am. I mean, I get it in the world. There's a weird way in which somebody else's failures, you know, make us feel like we're not so bad. That's what the magazine aisle at the checkout line's for, isn't it? In our mundane lives, buying broccoli at Publix. Hey, look at the problems of those celebrities. Though they're rich and famous and living the good life, man, their life stinks. I don't feel so bad. That's what those things exist for, but not for the Christian, especially in the church, because this is, again, a church problem. We in the church, especially when, when we get into competition of the spiritual gifts and, and, and edging people out, as the people we're trying to do in Corinth, we can quickly turn this way, can't we? Where we just have this, oh, all right, that person's going, they might, you know, they... They're falling back. That means I can move myself forward. That's what was happening in this church. So it had the veneer. It had the look of spirituality. But you take a bite into that apple and it tastes like cardboard. There's no grace on the inside. There's no love on the inside. I'm thinking of that because I grabbed an apple this morning to eat on the way to church. And it was beautiful and shiny and looked great and even didn't have any mushy parts. And I bit into it and I turned to my kid and I'm like, Oh, that thing's awful. Look at that. It was just hollowed out on the inside, dry and dusty. Yuck. And that is a church with all the spiritual gifts, but none of its grace. No love. That's why it's useful. It's, it's purposeless. It's tasteless. It's not the real thing. And so the last one on the list really does summarize that because how could a Christian possibly take any joy in seeing someone fail when it comes to not just like, okay, I tried and messed, you know, I, I tried to preach a good sermon and I was off in my notes, but you know, this person sinned and then there's some self-righteous thing in me that's going like, ha, ah, I knew it. I knew they were a fraud all along. I mean, we could act that way to other churches, can't we? just because they might differ from us in some theology. But if they understand the gospel and they're preaching that, but then we just don't like the way they do their ministry and something happens at that church and there's a church split or whatever in our first instinct, rather than to feel awful for that, for the, for the way that that is, is going to be a stain on the name of the bride of Christ in our city. But we're like, yeah, you know, we're the best. Too bad for them. Maybe some of their people will come here and be enlightened. You know, because we've got elders. We do it right. 
there's things we should be proud of here. But we should repent of anything in our heart that would make us prideful about it. And especially rejoice in the unrighteousness of that would happen to happen. And maybe not just locally, but we could read national news. Or it's personal here. Maybe it's in a small group or a life group. There's a person that just seems to still be struggling with the same sin. And maybe when you hear them say it, you know, your first impulse isn't to come alongside and try to, again, help them out of that ditch. But it's like, when are they going to finally get it together? Because what says that is, get it together like me. Who has it together? So that's a little bit of harm joy. Rejoicing in unrighteousness. That kind of wraps all this up. And I get at the end of this thing, it, it does uh, give us maybe all some type of uppercut or jab or left cross. And uh, we need it. But we don't stay down as believers because we look up. And we look up to the only person that never lacked love in the smallest degree. Never even came close to committing any of these sins. The person that we come to worship today, Jesus Christ. We don't come to worship ourselves, to evaluate ourselves against the word of God and say, how wonderful I am. No, we, we look at those areas. We dig them up. We get to the roots. We pull them out. And we ask Christ to help us. But we also look to Christ as our guide. How wonderful that he is the perfect portrait of love, isn't he? He lived a perfect life of love. All 15 attributes of what love is in verses 4 to 7, he was painted with every single one of those colors, his portrait. We're replicas, but we're not the real thing. One day we'll be in glory. So that's why we don't boast in ourselves as believers. We boast in Christ today. And we can then look at all of these, and as much as we take one look at ourselves, we look at Christ a hundred times and say, how awesome is our Savior? How inspiring is it that he, he, he had much more stacked against him? He had hell and all its fury coming after him just to slip up once, to not love God perfectly once, to not love another person once, and he did it. He did it all the way to the cross. He was perfect. And that's why we praise him today. And we seek him. And then we put on the Lord Jesus Christ, it says in Romans. And we make no provision for the flesh. So look at this list and say, Christ, this is who you are. This is who you were. So help me to walk in love, close in Ephesians 5. To walk in love just as Christ loved me and gave himself up for me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we look to Christ, our brother, our savior, our author and our perfecter of faith. And then in doing that, we, we look to him and we become more like him. We're transformed from one glory to the next, beholding Christ in the word. Spirit, thank you for changing us from the inside through your word so that we can become, Father, beloved children of yours, imitators of yours, that look like their Father in heaven, look like their Savior, and even are carried along and filled by your Spirit, and that the first fruits of the Spirit's work in our hearts today would be love, simply love, as you pour out the love of God in our hearts. So even as we sing now of your love for us, the amazing grace that we should never tire of singing, that even that would be an expression, an overflow of the love you have for us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.